0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B
1: Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Good morning. Welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and so glad that you're here with us. Today is February 1st, 2021, and today is National Freedom Day. It's February 1st. National Freedom Day is always observed on February 1st and it celebrates freedom from slavery. It also recognizes that America is a symbol of liberty. The day honors the signing by Abraham Lincoln of a joint House and Senate resolution that later became the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. President Lincoln signed the amendment outlawing slavery on February 1, 1865. However, it was not ratified by the states until later on December 18th, 1865. So, happy National Freedom Day, and we're going to celebrate Abraham Lincoln because he's worthy of celebration. I don't care what San Francisco schools say they want to take his name off. Uh, It is worthy of celebration that we had freedom for uh, Americans, and the process is a very imperfect union, but we are getting better each day. Uh, Let's move on and talk about what happened over the weekend. A group of 10 GOP senators sent a letter to President Biden and said that they want a bipartisan COVID package. They proposed 600 billion compared to the 1.9 trillion that Biden and Democrats want. They said in the spirit of bipartisanship and unity, we have developed a COVID-19 relief framework that builds on prior COVID assistance laws. And they say that all of the other COVID packages were bipartisan in nature. They are worried that this new one would just be ramrodded through. And joining me to discuss this process is former President Trump's chief White House economist, Joe LaVorn. Good morning, Joe. Good
2: morning, Kerry.
1: So how serious do you think Biden is about bipartisanship?
2: On some issues, perhaps serious, Kerry. The, the, uh, the administration certainly wants to do more uh, to give aid to people who certainly need it, who need assistance. Uh, that was President Trump's goal all during uh, the, the crisis last year, uh, where we needed to get assistance to people who, no fault of their own, were out of a job uh, and, and had a very hard time making ends meet. Uh, and certainly there, there's more that can be done. The issue, though, Kerry, is is it's a grab bag of sort of a far left uh, wish list of, of, of items. For example, my understanding is that in, in, in the one point nine trillion bill, the amount of money that states are asking, the amount of money that's going to states is in excess of what many states are even asking for. So there is there could be some bipartisanship. I hope there is some bipartisanship, but it needs to be more targeted. It needs to be prudent. Uh, because the economy left to its own devices generally will thrive. Uh, So we'll see what happens.
1: And what about the money that hasn't been spent? I mean, tell us how much money has not already been spent? Because we've already passed trillions of dollars, and a lot of this loans and other money is still kind of sitting there and it hasn't been tapped. Why are we holding out the spigot here, even though a lot of it hasn't even been used?
2: That's part of the issue, Carrie, and that's why my colleagues uh, had highlighted that last year. Uh, that there was money that had gone to states that hadn't even been used and therefore now you want to give even more money uh, that does appear to be fiscally reckless to say the least and when you have a bill of this size uh, you could only imagine there's money that's in there that's probably not going to where it's supposed to go Uh, ideally you want a targeted uh, plan that helps the people who are uh, the the least uh, well off a lot of those people are in leisure hospitality uh, gaming restaurants eating establishments retail the sectors that have been hit really hard. But as you know, not all pockets of the U.S. economy are hurting. There are many states that have opened open safely and other states that have been more slow and uh, more slowly in opening. And, and their their economies have been, um, have, you know, have obviously been suffering more. There's Joe, no do you question- know how
1: much how much we're talking about that's been unspent? Do you know the price tag that's just sitting there?
2: I don't know. But what I can tell you is last year, the deficit as the share GDP was 15 percent of GDP, which is the highest since World War II. And uh, according to various estimates, if we spend what's in the current proposal of one point nine trillion, the deficit of a share GDP goes to 25 percent, 25 percent. So these numbers are staggering. Now, it may be that we certainly need to do more, but it needs to be done prudently and not in a way that's just the money is just spent willy nilly recklessly, if you will.
1: Well, let's talk about Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders has been pushing and pushing the Democratic Party. He says, by the way, Bernie Sanders is not even a Democrat. Technically, he's registered independent, uh, but he's trying to push the Democratic Party. And he's the head of the Budget Committee in the Senate. And he says the Democrats they shouldn't care about bipartisanship. They should just go through on the 51 majority vote rather than the 60 votes that's normally required to advance legislation. This process that he's pushing through is called reconciliation. And Democrats have 50 votes in the Senate, plus Vice President Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote to pass the legislation. What's interesting, what happened over the weekend is that Joe Manchin, he's a, a Democrat from West Virginia. He was upset about an appearance that Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris had in West Virginia, and she was pushing for the stimulus. And he said, she did this behind my back. This is very disrespectful. It seems that he is on the fence about this. Do you think that the Republicans could get him on board to stop this?
2: Certainly possible, Kerry, but there are other senators also on the Democrat side who are are moderate, uh, who who are somewhat fiscally responsive, or maybe they're very fiscally responsive and responsible. But uh, when when you have such a narrow majority, effectively, the vice president casts a deciding vote, uh, that's when you need bipartisanship, because, as you know, as you just mentioned, it only takes one or maybe two people on the other side uh, to to vote against. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm always an optimist, so I would like to see good policy. I would like to see people who who need the money to get that money. Uh, What I don't want to see is significantly higher taxes, uh, job killing business regulations and some of the things that that President Biden has put forward are not going to be good for growth, at least in the long term. Uh, In the short term, if we throw enough money at the economy, it might do okay, But that's not uh, prudent longer term. But we'll see. I mean, again, I don't know how these senators are going to wind up voting. Um, I'd rather have no legislation than something that's a bad piece of legislation. But hopefully we can come up with something to give people money that they desperately need, because there's still a lot of pain and hardship out there, as you know.
1: Well, and it seems that Republicans want the money to go to people who make less than $50,000. They say that if you're making a lot more, at least in this this most recent package, that a lot of this money was going to people who shouldn't be getting it, that a lot of them are already working, they already have jobs, a lot of them make over $300,000 a year, and they're getting money when people who are narrowly targeted, they're the ones who are not getting money because it's all been tied up right now.
2: We should be we should really be targeting the money now. When we first passed the CARES Act, uh, the president pushed it through in record time, bipartisan unanimous, basically, both the first and second or the second and third care acts, where we passed trillions of dollars in relief. We didn't have the time to figure out who, you know, who's who should we be selective with? How can we target it? We have a little bit more time now, so yes, you're correct. I agree with you that we should focus more on giving the money to the people who need it and not spend it and not give it to money to people who don't need it. But also, we need to open prudently and get the economy moving. I'm encouraged by some of the local area politicians who are starting to reopen. That's going to be good for business. Give people the opportunity to make their livelihood.
1: All right, Joe LaVorna, stay with us. We're going to be right back. We're going to take a quick commercial break. That's Joe LaVorna. He's the former White House chief economist for former President Trump. We will be right back after this break.
0: (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana.
1: And good morning. We are back here at Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and here with Joe LaVorna again. He's the former White House chief economist for former President Trump. Hey there, Joe. Hi, Carrie. So have you spoken to former President Trump since the election, or no, I guess I, since I, he's left office? Uh, have you spoken to him recently?
2: No, I haven't. But uh, Larry Kudlow is a very good friend of mine. I've spoken with Larry. And if you know, Larry was uh, the president's uh, top economic advisor. And, uh, and Larry and I keep in touch quite regularly.
1: Right. And so what's he telling Larry? Uh,
2: Well, I'd rather not say Uh, what I could tell you is that uh, like like myself, uh, Larry is an optimist and uh, really cares most about policy Um, and where we can get bipartisanship. Let's do it. Uh, I think a lot of times our our friends on the liberal side, uh, we we have the same objective and that is helping people who are less fortunate. The question is how you go about doing it. But uh, I think I hope there's room for compromise on some of this policy. And that we don't go uh, down a path, carry that that will hurt living standards by crimping productivity growth and dampening wages. Because as you may have heard me say before, uh, at least through 2019, before the pandemic, uh, wage growth across all races, ethnicities, creeds uh, accelerated at a record pace in 2019. And that's largely a result of tre- President Trump's policies that were shaped by my old boss, Larry Kudlow
1: hmm And let's talk about this uh, your craziness with Reddit and what's happening to Wall Street. It seems that Main Street is having revenge here with Reddit. So in the latest stock frenzy, Reddit investors pumped the joke currency 800 percent. It's called Dodgecoin. It was created in 2013 as a gag before finding a steady consumer base online. And at one point, it jumped by roughly 800 percent on Thursday for a time reaching a high of 7.2 cents Uh, and the rally, which reportedly came about due to the machinations of the Reddit forum Satoshi Street Bets is the latest wild stock fluctuations this week, spurred by internet retail investors. What is going on?
2: Technology has allowed uh, the retail investor to be quite savvy. In fact, if you look last year, Kerry, when the market fell at a record pace from late February to mid-March, the retail never bailed. Institutional investors, people that typically you know are the ones who are who are buying low and selling high, it was actually retail investors that held firm, put money into the market, and Reddit sort of reflects that bigger trend of the retail base becoming much more savvy uh, and intuitive. And technology has allowed them to get access to information. Of course, trading costs have collapsed. So what we're seeing is the democratization of credit and trading, which has been going on for some time. That's continuing. And these retail investors are going to be a force to continue to be reckoned with. And the market needs to be cognizant of that, as do the regulators. Uh, and, uh, you know, this isn't just about uh, helping one side or the other. You want to have a level playing field. And I hope that whatever happens with this, that we don't have overly uh, onerous regulation. I think, as I said earlier, the market generally left to itself will have the uh, have the best outcome.
1: And do you think President, former President Trump's populism and just sort of that mentality of, taking the establishment down, do you think it influenced and kind of fueled this?
2: Partly. But the president certainly was cognizant of broader trends that had been in place for a while. And that's why, Carrie, when you look at the numbers of back in November, the, the amount of um, minority voters, Hispanics, blacks, you know, the Republicans had a record a record increase. And that partly reflects the populism and also President Trump's uh, populist policies that really were designed to sort of help the, the lower middle classes. So, yes, it's a continuation of those trends. And, uh, and again, with the right set of policies, this populist approach or this populist uprising, if you will, is likely to continue. And it's not unlike what we've seen in the past. If you go back into the 1800s of, of, with Andrew Jackson, you get these periods of populism and we very well could be on the cusp of one such uh, such as one right now. And, and arguably what's happening in financial markets is just another reflection of that.
1: Uh, It's interesting you mentioned Andrew Jackson, because President Biden apparently took down the portrait of Andrew Jackson that Trump had in the office. But I want to talk about something from Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. He's a guest on the show often. He tweeted out that he plans to investigate the GameStop market turmoil. He tweeted out that, today, I am launching an investigation into the trading platform Robinhood and hedge funds who rigged our free market for the benefit of Wall Street elites. The U.S. economy should be transparent, open. This week's coordinated corruption by a cabal of oligarchs shows it isn't. I'll help fix that. Okay, first, let our viewers know, what's he talking about? What what does he say that this Robin Hood thing, why why is he saying it's corrupt? Do you agree with him? And what do you think the remedy would be if you do?
2: The the short answer is I don't know. I mean, certainly we ought to look and do some forensic accounting, if you will, to see what exactly happened. The issue is that Robinhood, but they weren't the only ones, essentially shut down trading uh, within a certain number of stocks. GameStop uh, being one, Game, sorry, GameStop, shop being one of them, and um, and that institutional investors can trade in it. And there's been thoughts that uh, what might have been happening is that Robinhood was trying to protect some of its institutional investors. So basically,
1: um, it was allowing the big boys to trade, but not everyday right. Americans. So it was protecting right. Wall Street. But not main street according to this argument
2: right but the, here's the thing though and again i don't know the answer to this just to be sort of just as objective as possible uh, Robinhood and other brokerages have to post uh collateral and reserves at the clearinghouse for these stocks it very well could have been that robin hood did not have the adequate capital in place and that's why they had to stop trading but again that's also a reason to look into it to see what happened because we've been through these financial shocks where the financial system isn't as robust as we as we thought it was so we ought to figure out if, if these entities just aren't financially capitalized properly that that's something obviously to look at because financial instability is an issue but whether there's wrongdoing I don't know I'd have to really I understand the argument on both sides but I'd have to really look at the details and see and have an honest appraisal of what happened we just don't know that yet
1: Joe, you're an honest man. I have to say, in politics, having someone say refreshingly, "I don't know," it's very rare. So, but but okay. what do you think? I
2: try, yeah, I try to be as honest as I can, honest all the time. But I try to be objective. It's hard because you've got the, you know, we all have these biases and cognitive dissonance, and 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 we're trying to do the best we can. And the motion is is a wonderful thing, but also can sometimes hurt clear thinking. So, the extent that I can be clear headed, I try to be.
1: Great. So but as far as the GameStop itself, what do you think was driving the interest in pumping it up? Why, why do you think these people, uh, you know, on the Reddit forums and the like were pumping it up? What, what was driving this from your perspective?
2: So the, the the company had some I mean, arguably, there were a lot of people I know that liked the company fundamentally. Of course, they didn't think it was going go to four hundred dollars a share. Uh, but the fundamental story, one could make a case that has a good fundamental uh, underpinnings. And uh, the, again, the retailer community, which I'm saying is much more sophisticated than it was before, uh, saw that this stock was heavily shorted. In fact, the, the amount of the short base exceeded the, the total level of the stock, effectively, where companies or hedge funds were able to short more than 100 percent of the stock. And, uh, and the retail base realized that. And it was an old classic short squeeze where if everybody's on one side of the trade, effectively, the trade could only go in one direction. In this case, it went higher. So this is it's this technical anomaly. That these investors, these retail investors, I thought were very savvy and pushed the price significantly higher. Now, whether the fundamentals justify that, I have, I don't, nobody can know that for certain. But essentially, it was a technical trade. We've seen this in markets where the price of a, of a stock or a commodity can do all sorts of crazy things based on technicals. Just look last year, Carrie, at oil prices back in, I believe it was May, they went negative. Oil prices went negative. So you get these unusual developments. And that's why we want to make sure we have a robust financial structure. And that's one of the things to bring up in another topic I probably shouldn't is, is monetary policy in the Fed. And what happens when you have zero interest rates and a commitment to keep rates with zero for an in indefinite period of time. At the same time, the balance sheet of the Fed is growing massively. You're going to create these incredible distortions,
1: right? Yeah, I, I think a lot of our viewers are going to agree with you on that one on the Fed. All right, Joe LaVorna, thanks so much. We'll be right back with more about the economic populism of former President Trump. Stay tuned.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash
1: Hey there, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, and glad that you're with us. So last week on this program, we had someone who is setting up a new think tank. He was former President Trump's director of the Office of Management and Budget. And he's got this new think tank coming up, and he wants to plan, basically, how to put all of the economic populism and just the, the populist ideas that former President Trump really channeled and bring it into ideas, as he said, institutionalize them. And joining me is Henry Olsen. He's a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's also an editor at unheard.com and the author of the book, Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism. Good Morning, Henry.
3: Good morning.
1: So you wrote a column where you basically endorsed what's happening here with Russ Vogt, who was running the OMB for former President Trump, where you said your headline was conservative populism might finally be getting the intellectual heft it needs. You said Donald Trump entered his presidency with a clear set of instincts, but little in the way of detailed policy proposals. That cannot continue if the conservative populist alliance that many on the right envision is to grow and flourish. Thanks to Russ Vogt, who served as Trump's director of the Office of Management and Budget, help is on the way. So what do you think the the end goal here is? Like, do you think that it will actually be successful here? What's your read on the trajectory of this think tank?
3: Well, I don't know where, how the think tank is going to prosper because Russ has to raise money and get scholars on board. But what I do know is that the idea is absolutely essential, that where the Republican voter base is, is a combination of pre-Trump conservatism and post-Trump populism. And that in order to make that more than angry slogans, there has to be policy ideas that improve people's lives and solve real problems. And that's what think tanks like Russ's and Orrin Cass's American Compass and people in a number of the establishment think tanks, including my own ethics and public policy center, are working on right now. And that's where the future of the Republican Party needs to go.
1: And have you heard that among some center right think tanks that there's kind of a purge to not allow former Trump scholars because I've heard some rumors of that from certain about certain think tanks.
3: Well, I don't know that in a verifiable way. I do know that there are a number of think tanks that would prefer not to move in the conservative populist direction. And so consequently, they are continuing to try and build support for the pre-Trump Republican Party. But as I said, the voter base of the Republican Party doesn't want that, that the Trump voters, the people who will vote for a Republican candidate want a combination of conservative and populist ideas. And good people will find their homes, whether it's on their own, through a university or by contract work, uh, good thinkers in the conservative populist alliance movement will find their home, whether uh, it's a new place or an old place.
1: Well, and what's interesting is that you mentioned sort of the establishment Republicans they are trying to go back to business as usual. And Russ Votes says, no, we're never going back to pre-business as usual, we're never going back to the time before Trump came down on the escalator in Trump Tower in 2015. That's just not happening. And it, when you see 2020, a lot of new voters came into the Republican Party, African American voters, Latino voters, people who had not given the GOP a chance you know, at levels not seen since 1960. It was a generational shift in many respects. But do you think that that shift is going to be just a one and done thing because it had more to do with Trump? Or do you think it's going to be something the GOP is going to be able to captivate in the future?
3: I think that's really the GOP's choice. I think it's there for the taking, that there are a lot of voters in ethnic minorities, working class backgrounds and a number of suburbanites who may not have uh, liked the old Republican Party, but they're willing to give a different type of Republican Party a look because they're not really socialists. They're not really woke progressives. They are people who are traditional people who want a hand up from government, not hands off, but they don't want a fully-directed society, which is what a lot of people on the Democratic left want. So if the Republican Party wants these voters and are willing to adopt policies that will attract them, then these people will become loyal Republicans, much as their grandfathers, uh, if they were in the country then, were loyal Republicans prior to the New Deal.
1: All right, let's talk about another column that you wrote. And the headline is, why it will be so hard to roll back Trump's trade agenda. You talk about the World Trade Organization pushing its, its adherence to the, quote, Washington consensus. This included liberalized trade and investment in, in, in and floating currencies as a price of admission. You said China's admission to the WTO extended the American free trade religion to the world's most populous, populous nation. We were promised it would result in peace, prosperity and democracy for all. That didn't happen. So what specifically is the Biden administration going to have a hard time rolling back when it comes to trade?
3: Uh, first of all, the U.S., uh, the, the new NAFTA, the trade deal with U.S., Canada and Mexico, uh, is a done deal. And that's going that was constructed to bring more high paying jobs directly to the United States. So that's one thing that's not going to be uh, undone. Secondly, there's the political demand for buying American and whether he atops it through tariffs like Trump did or through subsidies, which seems to be what Biden is doing. That means putting a big thumb on the trade levers in order to encourage manufacturers and other people to bring jobs back or create new jobs in the United States. So it may be different means, but it's the same goal. And then the third thing is China. What Trump really did was focus the globe's attention on the growing power of a communist dictatorship that does not respect human rights or the words that it puts down on paper. Witness what it's doing in Hong Kong. The entire world is trading with China and they all now recognize what they tried to ignore for years before Trump. And that is every dollar they send to China strengthens a regime who is trying to conquer its own people and expand its influence to its democratic neighbors. There's no way that we can avoid that conflict. And that's something that wasn't possible before Trump. And it means trade restrictions of some sort on China are going to continue, whether or not the people in big business like it or not.
1: So, Henry, I want to ask you about related labor unions. So it seems that labor unions, at least on oil, three of them who endorsed Biden in 2020 during the election, they've spoken out. They're upset about the Keystone Pipeline, which Biden, through a stroke of his pen, has undone. They're upset about this. Also, before the election, even, there were some health, some healthcare care plans that the unions were upset. They don't want to give these private sector health care union uh, you know, packages that they negotiated and give that up to socialized medicine. They do not like Medicare for all. And they were pushing back on the Democratic Party's move in this direction. Do you think labor unions on this issue of trade will also be a possible thorn in the side for President Biden?
3: Well, it, it, labor unions traditionally have wanted to restrict global trade with countries that have low wage structures so to the extent that biden is trying to do that then they'll actually be allies of the biden version of the trump agenda but where labor unions have real problems is with the green aspects of the democratic party as you pointed out the keystone pipeline because there's no way to make progress on china uh, on uh, um, climate change without pushing away from fossil fuels and damaging millions if not tens of millions of jobs that are built on the production transportation and consumption of fossil fuels you can't square that circle and henry unified, what about
1: what about also uh, immigration do you think that immigration is an issue that could be poised to have really a, a clash between unions and biden
3: absolutely and more importantly than unions with the massive ununionized working-class sector in the united states that The more people we have come to work at American wages who are then uh, used to third world living conditions, it means they're undercutting the wage structure for working class people who were legally in this country to begin with or were uh, people who were native to this country. We need a tight labor market to make sure that the gains from economic growth go throughout all of America. And that means restrictions on immigration. And that's another place where we're working.
1: Henry Olson, thank you so much for your expertise. We appreciate it. Thank you. And stay tuned. We have the, uh, a group that is looking at child abuse in the age of COVID. Stay tuned.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
1: Hey there, good morning. Welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, and glad you're with us. Well, over the weekend, my colleague Daniel Payne just yesterday released an article with a very troubling topic. The headline is that child's, children's safety advocates are fearing the lockdowns and distancing are sending child abuse rates skyrocketing. Reports of surging child abuse rates over the past year have triggered alarm among child safety advocates who fear the crisis was precipitated by COVID-19 mitigation policies like lockdowns and school closures. With millions of children confined to their homes and relatively isolated from the outside world due to distancing policies, the shutdowns the advocates warn could be contributing to the surge while at the same time concealing its true extent. And joining me to discuss this is Daphne Young. She's the National Chief Communications Officer at Child Help. Good morning, Daphne.
0: Good morning, thank you for having me.
1: So walk us through what we know because we've seen conflicting reports that, okay, it's it's teachers, uh, you know, clergy, People are mandated, if they suspect child abuse, they're mandated, they have to report that they suspect child abuse under the laws. And with the lockdowns, you have churches are not allowed to meet, you have children with schools, they're shut down, so they're at home. Do you think that the abuse is actually more prevalent, or is it just that there are fewer people who are reporting it?
0: I think it's B. Uh, Our heroes, the teachers, the coaches, the clergy members, all the folks that put eyes on children regularly and are trained to report are not seeing kids. And we at the Child Health National Child Abuse Hotline are seeing double digit increases in children having to advocate for themselves. So it used to be that a child might shyly go into their teacher and say, you know, can I tell you something? And there'd be a conversation. And then this full advocacy would take place. Now we have little kids calling us saying school is my safe place. I don't know what to do now. And they're trapped at home with abusers. And I think that we're just seeing the the beginning of what is going to be a child abuse epidemic in America.
1: And and what do you do at Child Help when you say that you have a double-digit increase in children advocating for yourself? What does that look like?
0: Well, at Child Help, we kind of do everything. Uh, we are the nation's largest, longest running national nonprofit that's dedicated to the intervention, the treatment and the prevention of child abuse. So we have everything from direct services, such as advocacy centers and residential treatment centers, to uh, we have the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline, which is 24 seven with degree crisis counselors taking calls. And we have prevention education, which is taught in schools. So with schools closed, without that prevention, uh, with just our hotline number out there, which we're trying to promote continuously, uh, we're getting, you know, first responder families, um, little kids, survivors, having to make those calls for themselves instead of the teachers, instead of the coaches and counselors.
1: And when you see these children who are calling on their own behalf, are they facing repercussions? Did the adults come and, you know, grab the phone out of their hands or um, what's happening when when the adults are the ones who control access to maybe communication?
0: Well, thankfully, before the pandemic, we released uh, text to chat services We're some of the first that's pioneering this. And we're actually studying it. We received an HHS grant to be able to do this. So. We started working on text to chat. And as the pandemic hit, as these kids were trapped with abusers, we had a service now where they could secretly talk to us, where they could secretly share their stories. And one room away, they wouldn't be heard. So we are so grateful that we launched that prior to the pandemic because it's a godsend now.
1: And USA Today, back in May, and I want to get your thoughts on what's happened since May, but they said at the time, kind of early down in the lockdown, that emergency rooms were saying that they are seeing more severe injuries or more severe cases of abuse, that the abuse is getting more tragically more violent. Uh, is this something that, the, uh, that, that has continued? Because again, this was a USA Today headline from May. Uh, what have we seen since then?
0: Well, according to the CDC, the pandemic has affected healthcare seeking patterns. So what we're seeing is the worst of the worst in these emergency rooms, but we're not seeing the little stuff that's pretty darn bad. Uh, So you know, uh, whether people are handling it in home, whether teachers aren't able to see the bruises and handle it through the classroom, uh, a lot of kids are still being harmed, but they're not receiving care. And if you see a really tragic situation in an emergency room, you're probably not seeing a concussion that flew under the radar, uh, and this is what worries us. A lot of kids are not being seen and and may have longer lasting injuries.
1: And uh, News Medical Life Sciences uh, issued a report they said 250,000 cases of child abuse or neglect may have gone unreported in the U.S. COVID-19 pandemic. This was an article from November. The, uh, you know, the stress, the loss of a job, financial hardship, parenting stress, everything with COVID seems to be, uh, you know, all culminating right now. What do you recommend to parents if they're feeling stress, if they're feeling, you know, just just hopeless with everything being locked down?
0: Well, we're getting those calls. We're getting so many calls from parents. Hey, I'm a first responder mom that has to go in and work with COVID patients. Where do I take my child? Child care is locked down. Uh, they are in crisis. And like you mentioned, heightened stress, economic struggles. We've got food insecurity, school closure, loss of income, uh, and also um, substance abuse. Uh, crowding in the home. Think about urban low-income houses, multi-generational families in one space. Everyone's kind of crawling on top of each other and going a little crazy. And we have children calling in that are actually being physically abused and harmed. But we also have teenagers calling in that are saying, you know, I'm being emotionally abused. Uh, I'm fighting constantly with my family. I just want to die. Uh, so when we see these upticks in suicide and we see... Well,
1: Daphne, we uh, appreciate Daphne, it. We have to run. Uh, we've been putting up the phone number there for people to call your hotline, and we appreciate all that you're doing on this issue. All right, that does it. We will be right back with more Stay Good morning. Welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield. i glad that you're here with us. Well, one of my latest pieces over the weekend was looking at a bipartisan issue that could go by the wayside. So there has been bipartisan condemnation of how China has been treating the Uyghur people. The genocide label is something that the former President Trump administration put out. They said what China is doing to the Uyghur people is genocide. And now this designation of genocide is in doubt as the Biden administration is wavering. A former speechwriter for Mike Pompeo, who was key to get the genocide designation, he said if the Biden administration is looking for a place to start with a bipartisan issue that they can bring the country together on, the China challenge is absolutely it. Now, there was a lot of excitement uh, among the Uyghur community, especially here in the United States, because it seemed that Biden was going to continue the policy of labeling this as genocide. But it turns out this might not be the case. Take a listen. This is testimony from the U.N. ambassador nominee by Joe Biden. This is what she said.
0: May I ask you, do you consider what's happening with Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, what the Communist Party of of, of China is doing there? Do you believe they're guilty of genocide? What they're doing there has been referred to uh, as genocide. And I know that uh, the State Department is reviewing that as we speak. Uh, What they're doing is horrific. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing the results of, of the review that's being being done, but certainly it... Well, there's, is, but the State Department issued a designation, I believe, on the President's last day, so is your understanding that it's now being reviewed by the State Department to see if that's appropriate? Or? I think the State Department is reviewing that now because all of the procedures were not followed, and I think that they're looking to make sure that they are followed, too.
1: So all of the procedures were not followed. So if you're translating that, that sounds like it could just be a bureaucratic reason why she would be removing this. This is Linda Thomas Greenfield uh, during answers you can see to Marco Rubio there before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week. And then flash forward in response to this, the State Department, the head, uh, Anthony Blinken under Biden, he had this to say. Um, You talked about uh, reviews, and with respect to Uyghurs and Xinjiang, in your confirmation hearing you endorsed the genocide uh, determination, but today Linda Thomas-Greenfield said the department is reviewing um, that determination. Is that only about the process, or are there different views on on this determination, and should we expect some more punitive action throughout this?
3: Uh, So I haven't actually seen what what Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield said, so I can't. Uh, I can't comment on it, but uh, I. um, My judgment uh, remains uh, that uh, genocide was committed against uh, against the Uyghurs and uh, that uh, that hasn't changed.
1: So we'll see what happens. We'll see what prevails in this. Uh, It seems that the Biden administration is kind of at war with itself to say, hey, This had to do with the Trump administration, so we won't keep anything from the Trump administration. Um, We'll see if, in the end, uh, as the— Blinken. Blinken is actually the one who's heading up the State Department. At the end of the day, he is the one who has control over this designation. So, most likely, if he—what he's saying is true, if he wants to hold true to his word, or he says that, yes, this is a genocide designation, then what the U.N. ambassador-designate said would be inaccurate. Um, But this is something that is unifying the left and the right. You can see that was Marco Rubio, a very uh, outspoken Republican senator. The, The issue here of human rights and what China is doing. The the issue of, of opening up China. This was something that the United States had been so hopeful about under former President Richard Nixon. He led all these emissaries there to open up China. And the thinking then was that China would become a a liberal democracy over time, that the more economically successful the people of China were, the more freedoms they would demand. The wealthier they were, the more the country would liberalize—liberalize from an economic standpoint. And the, the truth is that what's happened since the 1970s, since Richard Nixon opened up China, is that the Chinese regime has actually taken this wealth and taken this money and used it to enrich itself so that it can then use technology and force to control its people even more in ways that they couldn't do until it was opened up. So what's happening is that the Chinese government, in many ways, is uh, it behaves economically liberal, or beca- behaves economically that like it believes in, in free market and competition. Heck. You're, you're probably wearing a t shirt right now that was made in China. Uh, so much of what was, uh, we use every day was made in China, and it's made very cheaply. Um, but it seems that this is now coming at a cost because not only is China repressing its own people, uh, this is you where know, it is the report is that as many as a million Uyghurs, uh, this is a Muslim minority, have been kept in what can be described as, by some as concentration camps. And the technology and the surveillance is very sophisticated that's used to control the Uyghur people. But guess what? This, the same technology is used to control all of its people. And, and we saw what happened with Hong Kong, with the people of Hong Kong, that under the law, under the law that what happened with the UK and the transfer of power from the UK to China when they were getting rid of the colony, they said the people of Hong Kong will be free. And the date and the timeline that was in the treaty, China has rejected that treaty. They have rejected the rule of law. So by what they're doing to their own people, not only in Hong Kong, but what they're doing also uh, with the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, this is— should—is is going to be something that the, the Biden administration is going to have to grapple with. And whether they want to uh, just roll back everything that former President Trump did just because it was Trump, um, they're going to have to really grapple with this. And uh, you can be sure that former President Trump is going to have a lot to say about this uh, on this China issue. And we're going to be following it here at Just the News as well. So we will be right back. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Stay tuned. Hey there, welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield and so glad that you're here with us. Well, let's talk about money. So the $20 bill, it seems is going to get a new face on it. And the Obama administration had started this process to put Harriet Tubman on there and remove Andrew Jackson. And the thinking is, well, Andrew Jackson held slaves. We need to have someone here who represents fighting against slavery. Harriet Tubman was a very famous abolitionist. There was an amazing movie that came out in 2019 about her life, Devout Christian. She fought to free slaves and she led them on the Underground Railroad. And a very interesting op-ed uh, that for Republicans, if you, if you disagree with what's happening, you might want to look more into the history of Harriet Tubman. So this essay in the Wall Street Journal by Mal- Michael Taub, he's a Canadian guy who used to write for the conservative Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, he says that he thinks that Harriet Tubman was a conservative. And he says that he thinks he goes on in the essay to say the reasons why include the fact that he, she was a big fan and friendly with the first Republican in the White House, Abraham Lincoln. Now, first, she didn't like him. She didn't understand him. But then when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, she came on board. She also met with her fellow abolitionist, Sojourner Truth, and got on the Lincoln bandwagon. There's also the fact that she carried a gun. She used that gun often on the Underground Railroad. She used it to defend herself and to defend the people who were under her care. The the gun that she owned actually is still around and her family has it. Uh, So very interesting theory. Also, let me ask liberals. You're opposed to putting a black woman on syrup, but it's okay to do it on on a $20 bill. I don't understand. All right. Stay tuned. War Room's next.